Welcome. This is Lawyer Up. I'm John Gonzalez, and along with my law partner, Jack Derora, we are speaking with Fred Giddis, one of the leading civil rights attorneys in Columbus, Ohio. Hi, Fred. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Fred, we're going to, I know your practice is broad and, um, and uh, you do a lot of different things in the, in the civil area. Uh, I'm not sure how much you do, if anything, in the criminal area. But um, well, it used to be, I started my career as a criminal defense lawyer, but okay. that's long past now. So what I wanted to talk to you about, and Jack and I were looking at some of the video that you sent us earlier, is um, the, the civil rights um, um, actions. And, you know, my sense is that probably over the last five or 10 years, those types of complaints or, or um, uh, types of, um, of legal cases have increased. What's your... Uh, sense of that? Well, it's, I have to give you a bit of a contradictory answer because the abuse, what I mean by abuse is the use of excessive force uh, continues unabated. And I would say, if we're focusing on the last decade, that they have increased and have become more blatant. Uh, I mean, if you look at what happened in Charleston and some of these other police shootings where in the Charleston case, you had one of the rare moments when the officer was prosecuted for murder. He shot the individual uh, as he was running away. Uh, a lot of reasons that I think we are aware of the fact that it's going up in numbers is because of cell phones and video. Uh, not, it's not, I don't know that we have a really empirical set of data that confirms this. I know that the FBI keep track of this and other groups, but just in my own observations, I think in the last 10 years, because of the increase in right-wing movements and militias uh, and open racism, generally encouraged by Trump and, and his supporters, or many of them, I don't want to label everybody, it's increased. Which makes one wonder how many problems went undetected and were not prosecuted more than 10 years ago just for lack of evidence. That's a scary thought. You know, well, it's not even just lack of evidence, it's lack of exposure. I, I mean, I'm sure you two have said this to people, I say it to people all the time, you know, with a very few exceptions, time after time after time, it's police officers' testimony against civilians and sometime against a dead person with maybe somebody observed it. Now, there are pictures and videos. It changes everything. So, uh, Jack, you're exactly right. You know, hundreds, if not thousands of cases over the years never saw the light of day because there, you know, at least in my experience, it was very difficult to bring the cases, lacking what we have now, which is evidence that's like, you can't deny it. It's hard to uh, get around it. 
Sometimes I think about um, the contrast with products liability law that came out just before I became a lawyer, and I think it's universally accepted that at least in the early stages and the first few decades of products liability cases, that they made products safer because lawyers were now suing these companies, and it it, it made a real change in, in a lot of these products. I'm wondering, again, from your experience, do you find the same thing with these civil rights lawsuits, that the more lawsuits are brought, that there's going to be a change in the behavior of, um, of law enforcement? I wish that were true, but I don't think it is. There are, there are a number of reasons for it. Uh, one is qualified immunity, which I understand we may be talking about later, but in a, in a very in a nutshell, it gives extra protection to individual officers. So they may, or in fact, typically don't suffer any consequences personally because of excessive force or other misconduct. Uh, we know they are rarely ever, if pro uh, ever prosecuted criminally. That's still the case generally, even with video. It's now happening a bit more after lots of protests, but it's still relatively rare. And typically you see acquittals by people who are very protective of the police. Uh, I mean, it's a hard job and people do want to give them the benefit of the doubt, although that's declining. And then the third reason is institutionally, uh, you have an, uh, the organized police unions that hold a lot of sway over the departments, and you have the, the code of silence. Uh, as an example, in the case we have going on now um, about the demonstrations where we're representing 26 people who were injured or attacked either through spraying or what are called double baton uh, ammunition, which is like a wooden bullet, or physically assaulted by law enforcement officers, even though a lot of it is on video, to my knowledge right now, and it's now been over six months, even though the private investigation that the city engaged, despite all its limits, uh, did refer some of the instances for prosecution or criminal investigation, not a single charge has been filed against any officer that I know of. Um, in addition, the city's own special study is called the Matrix Report, confirmed the other evidence we're getting in the case. Uh, they did surveys of police employees, including all the officers, and their report reports Anywhere from, depending on whether you're looking at the total diverse employees, black, white, women, men, or you're focusing on just um, black officers versus white officers, just shocking confirmation ranging from 70% to 20 to 25% of those officers, depending on which group you're talking about, but all of them are a fifth to a fourth of everybody confirming they have seen discrimination and they haven't reported it. So if you have 
a department, and this is not just Columbus. I mean, this is a problem everywhere in the country where you have, as the mayor confirmed in his deposition, a race issue. I mean, that's the problem in the whole country, not just police, but, um, and you've got people who see discrimination and they're either afraid or unwilling to report it. How do you change the institution? We've done now, I don't know how many depositions, I think we're probably up to like 15 or 16, have uh, questioned lieutenants, commanders, multiple deputy chiefs, uh, formerly the, uh, the chief Quinlan, then the new chief. And I believe it's accurate to say, in fact, I'm pretty sure it is, that not a single one of them could recall an occasion when a police officer or supervisor reported another officer for using excessive force. Let's, let's so, put this in context, Fred. You're talking about 15 depositions. This is part of the lawsuit that was filed last summer, the catalyst for which were the protests downtown. Am I right about that? That's right. Yes. And, and here's what's really interesting, at least from a lawyer's point of view. You filed this with three other law firms, right? Yes. I, I and some other lawyers who have done have been concerned about policing in general. And I, I want to make sure everyone understands. I, I represent officers, too. I, some of the people I've been in awe of over the years of my practice have been incredibly dedicated police officers who have risked their lives, including because they were honest and reported misconduct of other officers. But yes, uh, we all got together because we realized this was just too large of a case to handle uh, as a small firm. You've got 26 plaintiffs and basically two themes, excessive force and discrimination. Am I right? Well, we think the discrimination is behind or contributes to the excessive force, but it's, it's, it's the, also First Amendment rights. It's a lot about the right of people to engage in peaceful, nonviolent protests. And, and, and one of the big issues in the case that you hear in all these cases around the country is um, if somebody gets out of line, which people do often in large protests, especially as it gets darker and a lot of the people who are there during the day demonstrating leave, and there is damage or busting windows, there is a, an assumption, and this is going to be one of the things that'll be discussed in the case, that there's a, a police mentality that it's all organized and everybody's there intending and planning on being violent or threatening. And, that, and remember, they're protesting the police and they're protesting racism in the police. So you have this situation where you have the police supposedly trying to protect First Amendment rights and the public interest when they are the target of the protests. And a lot of the reason for the protests is repeated acts 
of excessive force, even killings, predominantly of people with color. The protests you're talking about, um, give our listeners, when did they occur and um, uh, where did they occur? And also, how did you find the 26 people? I mean, were there hundreds of people and you've chosen these 26 or are these the only ones that you could find? Well, you know, at the peak of the demonstrations, which began, I think the first day was May 27th of 2020. And they continued through that weekend in June, they went into July, there were follow up, uh, much smaller demonstrations, because we had, you know, we had, you know, additional killings later in, in August, September, November. Um, But the, the core demonstrations, which were Originally, you know, a result of the uh, the um, Floyd, I'm going to call it a murder because that's my opinion, but, um, and the Bianca Taylor case, they were very large. We're talking at different times, well over a thousand people. They were, they were largely downtown, but there were also, uh, portions of the demonstrations that were out out east. There were some up further north in the campus area. And the, the, the most intense activity was in May and June. I wanted to be plaintiffs. By, what we've learned so far is that there were over 800 uh, complaints, comments, communications with the city about behavior of officers during the demonstrations. By the way, only 49 or 47 were sent to Baker and Hostetler, which people may remember the city hired a law firm called Baker and Hostetler to investigate the civilian complaints instead of the Internal Affairs Bureau, which this is a whole very important topic that'll come up in the case. So about 40, 47 or 49 of all those hundreds were sent to them to look into. So there was no dearth of people who had complaints and they made the complaints. We, we suspect as the case continues and after we have an initial hearing coming up at the end of the month, we may well get many more individuals who would like to be represented. If I recall, the Baker and Hostetler investigation didn't turn up much in the way of valuable information, primarily because the police themselves weren't cooperative. Am I right about that? Uh, It's a combination of things. That was an element for some. Uh, the, the problem with the Baker and Hostetler investigation is, first of all, they were required to use the same standards, the same procedures uh, in terms of what is sustained and not sustained as the Internal Affairs Bureau. Secondly, they, they had difficulty because many officers didn't have their body cams on during critical periods of time for various reasons. Um, You know, the officers have excuses and there's others where it's little, you know, it's not even a clear explanation. 
Uh, also, there wasn't, they didn't have badge, badges or uh, name tags on for a period. And so as a result, the Baker and Hostetler people couldn't identify the officers. So that made it more difficult. And because of the, the, the rules they operated by, that made it hard for them. They generally took the position that if they couldn't identify the officer or they had no other uh, way to get the other side of the story, they actually either uh, ruled that charges, the complaints were not sustained, that's the phrase that's used, or even unfounded, which to me is, I, I don't get it. How can you say if you have, we have people who file complaints, were interviewed, have video confirming their injuries, let's say from wooden bullets, confirm that they were shot by officers, can't identify the officer, Baker and Hosteller couldn't identify the officer. No one questions they were injured and shot. So how is that unfounded? They were also placed under strict time limits because the uh, city required that they follow the time limits that were bargained for by the FOP, which is 90 days. Now think about it. You've got to investigate, you know, there are 800 complaints there are, of which, according to what I understand from the testimony, is the most they've ever gotten from an event like this. They had close to 50. That's a lot of cases to investigate all at once in 90 days. You got to get the information. You have hundreds of hours of video. I mean, thousands of hours, actually. Uh, you have uh, videos that were being sent in by people who were in the protests who used their, their uh, phones or cameras to, to record things. It's a huge amount of work. I, you know, I, I don't criticize Baker and Hostetler for struggling to get through things, but they only had 90 days because that's what the rule was. They asked the city to get an extension, which the, the contract allows uh, with the FOP's agreement, and the FOP said no. I would not agree to it. Right. I'm not clear. Is your is the lawsuit that you filed last summer focused exclusively on the abuses that you allege occurred during those protests? Or do you have plaintiffs alleging problems from prior events as well? No, it's focused on what happened. Our our focus of the case and the motivation for the case as much or more than getting compensation for the individual people who were hurt is getting an injunction from the city to make sure this doesn't happen again. We are, we are closely examining the policies of the, of the division. Uh, more important, the training. What are, they, what are they trained to do? And if that training basically gives officers license to use force, uh, even if it's a peaceful person demonstrating or a peace, peaceful group of people demonstrating, even if they're engaging in a minor misdemeanor like, uh, like a curfew violation or standing in the street without endangering anybody and not doing any violence, 
if they're allowed to use force and weapons against those people, as opposed to either arresting them if they don't comply, if they're being ordered to leave or uh, giving them tickets or separating them. And there's, there's lots of different police te uh, techniques that were that will come out in the case. But in any event, if the training and the policies allow them to do that, it is our position that has to be stopped, that that's not legal. That doesn't protect the right of people to protest peacefully. And I think I sent you a, a couple of short little videos that demonstrate what I'm talking about, where people were fired upon uh, by uh, rifles firing what are called double baton ammunition, who were just standing there. Uh, they were standing in the street, three of them, as one example. There were people all along the sidewalks. None of them were throwing anything. There were no apparent weapons. The, uh, there's a row of officers, as you saw in the video, uh, I, I guess about 15 of them, all suited up with their helmets and their bulletproof vests and masks and all that. And a number of them had their rifles to file that ammunition. They're calm, they don't look threatened, and they start shooting at the uh, a woman and two guys who are at the street who are 15 yards away. Um, you know, we, we watched that before we started with you, Fred, and uh, you've described it accurately. I didn't see any threat, and all of a sudden that young woman goes down. Yep. In fact, and they had to help her off the street, the two, two, uh, two guys who were with her. Uh, you know, and I'm just picking that. I, I just sent you a couple of simple examples. Um, Fred, how many, um, how many instances of abuse, and if you've already said this, forgive me, how many instances of abuse have you tallied from those protests? Uh, we haven't. Well, there's no way for us to do that. We're still, we, are, we have gotten hundreds and hundreds of use of force reports. We haven't been through them all. We are still uploading videos into so much volume. So we're doing the best we can in the time we have to get ready for the hearing, but we won't get through all of that data and records probably for months yet. Got the uh, video up on the screen. Can um, Fred, can you see that? Yeah, I can. Um, so the contrast to what we saw in the Capitol riots to me is incredible, but we're looking at 30 or 40 officers across one of the downtown Columbus streets facing off against two young people. Looks like a, a guy and a girl. Yep, um, and then the third person does walk up. Yeah, and the third person inches way up. Is there any explanation that you've had that explains why the police began shooting uh, the rubber bullets at these three people? I don't, I've not heard a specific explanation for this specific event, this specific example, but we, we, we generally get, there's like a catalog of excuses that we've heard. Some, sometimes legitimate, don't misunderstand me. I mean, there were occasions, especially as you got later into the evenings and uh, when there were far fewer demonstrators there where people were throwing things. Uh, and as we know, some, uh, you know, we're talking maybe 15, 20, could be a little more protesters later in the night 
mm-hmm. did uh, break, break in. You know, they did some looting. They set a couple of fires. But as you can see, that's not who most of the protesters were. And no. the, most of the demonstrations were during uh, daytime. They were... Uh, I mean, I think I've heard officers and commanders in videos we have of, of their roll calls and other testimony acknowledging that 99% of the protesters were peaceful. These people you're seeing in these two videos, they're clearly peaceful. They're not threatening anybody. And our the focus of our case is A, there's no assurance given the division's training, which authorizes this kind of stuff. And despite the minor tinkering that Mayor Ginthard ordered with the policies, their policies still allow for total discretion of these officers. And then uh, thirdly, there is no accountability. To our knowledge, um, other than a couple of recommendations for discipline for relatively minor things like not filling out a use of force report. I don't know of any officer who's even in all the time that's passed and Baker and Hostetler sent their 40 some recommendations, which were mostly either uh, not sustained, exonerated, you know, but only, only very few recommended as having been sustained, I still don't know of hardly anybody who's been disciplined. I know of one officer. That's all I know about. Fred, it seems to me that what you're hoping for is a judicial order that will be so broad that it will actually be result in policy revision for the police department based on the judge's assessment of constitutional violations. I mean, this, if you prevail, there's going to be a new chapter in the police book, it seems to me. Well, it is. It, I mean, in a sense, it's changing policy and hopefully training to make sure that uh, it won't prohibit use of force. It will not prohibit crowd control is just trying to keep it within constitutional boundaries, which we believe that the evidence will be that the training on its face is beyond that. That, So it is a way to try to uh, avoid this happening again, because it didn't happen just one day. It didn't happen just two days. It happened over and over again this spring. And, uh, you know, we now, the, the mayor is in a search for a new police chief. But as I said, the city council related to some other cases that I know you and I've talked about, Jack, involving uh, police officers, black police officers, um, as I said to city council, you're not gonna change this by doing by simply doing sensitivity training or diversity training. You're not gonna change this even by changing a chief because a chief can make a big difference. But if you don't have the leadership of the department 
seriously committed to stopping discrimination and excessive use of force. End of story. It's a number one priority. They take it seriously. They don't look the other way in those still relatively few instances when anybody actually reports it. It's not going to change. Why don't you tell our listeners, you'd mentioned it earlier, that uh, one of the um, problems with making changes in this area are is the whole issue of the qualified immunity the police officers get. What is that? Well, in 19, I believe it was 1982, in a case called Harlow versus Fitzgerald, the U.S. Supreme Court created a special protection for public officials, which comes up most often when uh, involving police. Uh, there is, it, it, what that special protection is, is that as changed in 1982, is that you cannot sue a police officer. Uh, let's say a, a police officer beats, you know, or shoots somebody. Um, and if they, in order to be able to sue the officer individually, the court said you've got to prove that how the officer caused the injury, or if it's a false arrest, the false arrest, that it was clearly established by prior cases that what they did was illegal. They also, also made it clear over the years that, by the way, you don't have to decide in that case whether or not for future purposes what the officer did was illegal, even if it wasn't already established. So what has this done? I'll give you some examples. Um, a recent case out of California, police officers stole property from some businessmen who were being arrested for various alleged crimes. They, they sued the officers for their thefts. The court said they have qualified immunity. Uh, we don't have a case that says you can't steal the property when you're doing a when you're doing a seizure and arrest. Now, Jack, you're laughing, and I I, I mean it's that it's outrageous. This has become so extreme that I mean I can give you another example. There's a a, a recent case where uh, officers were called to a hospital. You had a a man who was had pneumonia. He was mentally disturbed, hospitalized. He, he was disoriented, weak, but he didn't want to be in his room. And he was going around naked in the hospital. So the police came, they threw him to the floor, they jumped on him, they tased him over and over and over again and killed him. Court said, even though the law has been clear for years and years and years, excessive force when it's out of proportion to any reasonably necessary force is illegal. The court said in that case, well, that's a unique circumstance. He was naked. He had pneumonia. Uh, he was disturbed. The court acknowledged he didn't have a weapon, but he behaved in a disturbed manner. So he's naked without a weapon and they kill him. You know, I was, I was chuckling because I normally 
I often tell my clients, look, the law generally follows reason, but not always. And you've just given us two examples. More and more, uh, a number of judges have written just eloquent, powerful opinions, district judges for the most part, because they're confronted by these outrageous cases and they feel like their hands are tied. And they've actually, in their opinions, pled, you know, just asked the Supreme Court to fix this, that this shouldn't be the way it is. People should understand that it it is a totally court-created concept. The law involved in these, like it's the post-Civil War era civil rights statutes that are commonly called Section 1983. That's the most used of a number of them, um, is where it, it began, because that's a law where you can sue any state official for violating under color of state law uh, your rights. So when a police officer is arresting you or shooting you or enforcing state laws, they are acting under color of state law and they can be pursued individually or also the city in many cases that employs them can be. But so these judges are are just highlighting you. You should read some of the opinions. You really be impressed, both of you, I am. In addition, some conservatives now, I know that Justice uh, Thomas, of all people, extremely conservative, putting it mildly, has questioned qualified immunity in some comments he's made. So if qualified immunity were to be, for lack of a better phrase, repealed, vacated, pick your term of art, then police officers would then be subject to the same types of consequences that anybody would for any inappropriate behavior unless somebody unless state or states or the or the federal government came out with some new line of protection other than qualified immunity well before before the uh, harlow case there was still some protection for officers there was a what's known as a good faith defense where if they could prove they were acting a good faith they had a legitimate reason um for their actions that was that was viable, but it wasn't like this automatic, you know, unless you have exactly somebody, you know, stub their toe exactly the same way and it came in, up in a case that, that that's the only way you can be held liable. I mean, it's just extraordinarily extreme now. The other thing is, um, I, you know, this is not something I mentioned earlier when you were asking about how do we change or eliminate the problem in law enforcement agencies. Um, And, you know, by the way, I I don't believe that, quote, defunding the police is an answer. You can, I agree that how money is used related to social problems uh, should be changed. And a lot of what police officers sadly have to do is deal with a lot of social problems because there aren't any services and they get stuck in the middle of domestic disputes, child you know, safety, all kinds of things that aren't really about dealing with, quote, criminals. Uh, But we have to have police. I think anybody who thinks we can survive without law enforcement is, you know, I just think it's naive. 
in every country study I know. But what, what we don't have is a mechanism that directly affects officers who do, in many cases where there are killings or serious injuries to people, have a pattern of that behavior and are really, it's, it's mean-spirited or racist or, or otherwise motivated. Now, how do we fix it if you don't have departments that enforce their own rules? One thing is you can decertify them. You know, to be a police officer, you have to have a certification through the state. That, that could be, in some states, only a couple that I know of, have now said if you commit excessive force, um, the state can take away your license to work as a police officer. Uh, the, the other, other theories or proposals which are interesting is uh, each time you can make the officers, instead of the officers being covered as it is now, uh, if an officer gets sued, the Columbus Police Department pays any judgment against them. Um, but you could change the law that they would have to start paying for the insurance in order to continue working as an officer so that it's not the city and the public carrying the burden. Uh, I mean, there's lots of other ideas to try to uh, get, get away from this self-policing because you have the police department deciding whether their police are to be uh, disciplined or prosecuted. And that's, you know, it's kind of... Uh, incestuous. Fred, um, Jack and I appreciate your time. And um, this um, subject is so interesting. I know we could spend uh, hours, if not days, talking to you, and we'll certainly follow uh, the litigation uh, for your um, 26 plaintiffs. Uh, sometimes I think about uh, lawyers like you that stand between government abuse and our citizens, and I'm thankful that you've dedicated uh, a large portion of your career to that. And um, good luck to you, and uh, the, I wish you the most success. Well, thank you very much. I, too, am uh, impressed with what you do. And sometimes I jokingly say in the office when we have a case that strikes a moral tone, I'll say it here. Fred, you're doing the Lord's work. Keep at it. Well, I, I can't uh, speak for the Lord, and I don't <laughs> claim to be uh, reporting to him or her, but I, I do my best. But I, you know, look, I know you do any, any lawyers, do any kind of public advocacy. And I, I even know many lawyers in big firms who mainly do corporate work, who have gone down to deal with the immigration issues, volunteered to protect people who... Or, be, or, or whose kids have been separated from them. There are a lot of really caring, honest lawyers. I know a lot of people are saying will find that hard to believe because of all the lawyer jokes and stories, but there are at least some, right? There are. And thanks for reminding us all. Okay. All right, we'll be back next month with another legal or social justice issue. You can find us at lawyerupcolumbus.com or on your favorite podcast app on your phone. Until next month, remember to lawyer up. So long.